Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, they call him the apple hunter. Tom Brown has spent decades tracking down the rarest varieties of apples, finding some 1,200. One took him 16 years, and he wound up tracking it down to his own orchard in his backyard. He shares his many apple adventures with us tonight. Converting unused office space into residential units is one solution being looked at a lot these days uh, as we try to cope with the housing and affordability crisis in this country. What are the benefits? What are the challenges? What kind of buildings are best suited for that kind of conversion? And why do government-owned ones tend to be near the top of that list? We find out. Today is National Indigenous Veterans Day to honour the 12,000 Indigenous soldiers who served in the First and Second World Wars, as well as in Korea, and to recognise the discrimination they faced when they came home for decades afterwards. From 1994 on, December 8th has served as a day to remember all those who fought, and we meet a 36-year Navy veteran and honorary captain to talk about her years of service, the challenges and the triumphs. But first, after 118 days, the longest actor's strike in U.S. history appears to be over at last. We find out what the sticking points were, what happens now, and the impact that the strike has had on productions here in Canada. Big news in the entertainment industry. The Hollywood Actors Union has reached a tentative deal with the studios to end a 118-day strike, the longest in U.S. history. It's been going on since the middle of July. Uh, The contract agreement was reached today. It still has to be approved by the union's board and its member. But again, the deal brings an end to months of labor strife that's really hobbled productions in Hollywood and beyond. Uh, The union says the strike will be over at midnight, 12.01. I can't figure out if that specific time or Eastern time. So it's either coming up in a few hours or it's coming up in about five hours. Either way, it looks like things are done and thing, work will begin again on a lot of those big movies and shows that you're so used to seeing. The writers, of course, were on strike as well. They ended that just a while back. Um, again, going on since July 14th, compensation, AI, profit sharing from streaming. Well, those were all the big issues at hand. Uh, ABC's Jason, Na- Jason Nathanson has a bit of a synopsis. Striking actors in Hollywood studios have struck a deal, a tentative deal that would send actors back to work as of 12.01 Thursday morning. We don't know much about what's in the deal, but SAG-AFTRA negotiators approved it unanimously. It'll now go to the full membership to vote. AI and profit sharing from streaming had been major sticking points. The strike lasted 118 days, the longest U.S. actors' strike in history. There you have it. it. It looks as if it's over. Julian Dezotti is a Canadian actor and producer who's appeared in shows such as Snowpiercer and Suits. He's a Canadian Screen Award uh, nominee as well, and he joins me now. Julian, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Just your reaction to this. It's been a, it's been a long time coming. Yeah, it certainly has. Uh, it's great news. Um, obviously, it's something everyone has been uh, waiting for. And, you know, here in Canada, we we have still been working. A lot of the productions here are still going. But, you know, the amount of content that Canadians make is, is certainly not as much as our neighbors to the south. So uh, the majority of the work that, uh, you know, um, helps actors make a living is, service production that, uh, you know, would shoot mostly in Calgary or Vancouver or Toronto that are American television and film productions. So the fact that the actors are back uh, means that a lot of us are back as well. Yeah, I I guess the the writers first, now the actors, so it should be uh, business back to normal. But as you mentioned, there was a spillover effect. It was certainly being felt uh, out here in BC, in Vancouver. I know there are many other areas it was being felt. Just how much of a spillover was there with these two strikes that have gone up, that went on, including this one that seems to be over? 
Uh, there was quite a bit of spillover. I would say, you know, you're looking at almost 50% of the amount of work that was going around. Um, I certainly know a lot of people who were, had, had finally gotten their big break. They were going to be shooting big American shows that were here, and those got put on hold because of, um, you know, because of the strike. Uh, then actor was work, um, not actor, but SAG was working uh, with, you know, these interim agreements where they were trying to grant mostly mo- um, movie productions the ability to keep shooting, and I think that was helping uh, a little bit, but ultimately with sort of, you know, television production, which is the main bread and butter for us here, it was uh, still at a it was at a standstill for, for for the longest time. And I certainly know, you know, for myself, the the amount of auditions, the amount of opportunities had really really gone down. And uh, I mean, you you hope that that means there might be more work on sort of Canadian series or opportunities for Canadian series to get greenlit. But we're pretty slow to getting things going. So I really think a lot of people were they were out of work. And uh, so, so it affected a lot of people for sure. Yeah, I, I know people who work sort of on the back end, on the in, in the offices of these productions, and that was all shut down as well. So this had an impact far beyond uh, just the actors and the writers, right? Absolutely, yes. Um, I you know I know many production accountants, production coordinators, people who are you know were raring to go, were ready to go, um, that were re- you know ready to be on on these big shows, and just. You know, we're sort of at a standstill because, you know, if the actors aren't working, they're not working. So ultimately, it is felt by every single department. And I, I don't know what the figures are here, but certainly in, you know, California, I think it was like a $5 billion loss for the industry. So it's just a lot of money, not only on the productions themselves or the staff or the people working on them, but just the, the economy within that area and, you know, all the actors or talent that are coming up here, the ecosystem that it takes to sort of run these productions, um, all of that, that, that revenue, all of that opportunity was gone. So now hopefully some of that starts to return. Yeah, a reminder what they were fighting over because I'm sure these are things you know up close, right? Some of the stuff that uh, that that the SAG that the Actors Union was trying to get to get in writing, so to speak, with the studios. I, see, I think, yeah, ultimately it comes down to the streaming and the streaming model having upended. I think what you know most actors, writers, directors, producers were were, were used to, um, which is sort of you know you, you be on a show for a couple years that that, that you make a certain amount of episodes. Um, and you know, th- there's just a sense of you have a, a steady job and a steady paycheck for quite a while, and then the streaming model upended that. There's there's shorter series, the um, the episodes aren't as long, and so you know you start to sort of see this shrinking window. And ultimately, though, a ton of people are going on streaming on Netflix, on Amazon, uh, to watch these things, but the actors. Um, or the writers or the producers who, you know, would usually get a small cut of that money weren't really seeing that anymore. And the famous example is the show Suits, which went back on, which went on to Netflix and, you know, made a, just, it was one of their biggest uh, shows. And yet the people who had written on those episodes really weren't, weren't seeing, you know, wasn't seeing the money uh, return to them. And if these are lots of, we're not talking about a ton of money. We're just talking about enough that's like a little bit of a paycheck that could keep you going in between those times when you're not working because the work ultimately, the work that we've chosen to do is is a sporadic one. It's not a nine to five. It's not a 12, 12 uh, months out of the year. So really they were fighting for, you know, just a part of that, some a, a better, more up-to-date 
way of, of sharing in, in profits that are from streaming. Then you also have just a be, be, better salary earnings, you know, salaries and, and wages that are, are more commensurate with, with inflation and salary bumps, you know, the percentages that just need, need to go up as the cost of living goes up, which I think anyone can really relate to that, you know, the, all the cost of living has really, really gone up in the last few years. Inflation is, is at an all time high. And so you're feeling that you want your salary to be able to to match that. And then finally would be AI. AI was really, I think, the one of the things we'll see that they were really holding out on and really trying to make it clear that, you know, you want to use AI in your films or your movies, go, go for it. But you have to be able to compensate and also ask for the consent of the people that are either writing it or, or acting in it. And I think with the actors, it was particularly precarious because you you know they wanted to be able to use the likeness of one particular actor or a, a whole background of, of actors, uh, pay them once and use them forever, and to be able to own someone's likeness forever, even if they, even if they've passed on, or use a version of Tom Hanks in another movie. I mean, these are all sort of scenarios that they had to really think about and make sure that you know actors were protected into the future and also being compensated for it. Yeah, I mean, technology is moving so fast, and I think people sometimes forget it. That I mean, the acting world is a bit like a bit like tennis, where a small proportion of people make a ton of money, and a lot of other people work. You know, they they play, they work, but you know that uh, that people know in those categories need some protection. Yes, of course, and that's a that's a great analogy. And I think the streaming, you know, wars made that very obvious. You had a, a certain group of actors and writers, producers who were making, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to make things, and then the rest were, you know, really just scraping by trying to to make a living. So, you know, it's it's always been a feast or famine business. There's always going to be unemployment, you know, and so we're going back to work, but a lot of actors aren't going back to work. They're going back to maybe the potential to audition more and maybe more opportunities in writers' rooms or, or, or to, to produce their own work. But but ultimately, it's still a, it is still a tough grind, but th- these protections allow um, actors and writers to make a living wage and, and feel some sense of, of job security as technology, as our world continues to, to change at such a very, very fast pace. But while we also continue to enjoy content on our phones and on our iPads and on our screens, you know, people that, that, that need that, that, you know, the love of telling stories, of listening to stories of community and bringing people together, being entertained, that that's not going away. It's, it's more popular than ever. And I think the people who to tell those stories and give themselves over to that, that, you know, that craft and that artistry should be able to share on some of the, in the, in the winnings and the benefits. Julian, how long does it normally take? I mean, I, I guess most viewers won't necessarily have noticed a huge impact yet because it's kind of delayed, right? When the writers went out and, and the actors were out, uh, we've seen production stalled, but some stuff that was already in the pipeline has been out there. But have you noticed a change? Have you noticed that we're, stuff is not, not being, is not on air, for instance? Um, yeah, I think some of the stuff that was was meant to be airing this fall that had been greenlit back in you know in the spring and summer. Usually, that's the cycle for most broadcast network shows. You know, the stuff you see on NBC or CBS. That's the kind of stuff that was getting getting pushed. I'd say a bunch of things that were you know were going into a second and third season uh, just outright got canceled. Some networks like AMC had had ordered shows or were in the middle of filming shows, and this was the excuse they needed to you know use a ta- get a tax write off and just t- stop production. Uh, so I know of one show that was shooting here that had shot eight of the ten episodes, but they didn't finish it, and the show got canceled. So they have oh, wow. like. 
you know, almost a show done, but not enough that they can air it. So it's an incomplete show. So all of that time and that money and that, and that effort is, is gone. So, you know, I think because there's so many shows and movies, I, I, do, I think if this were to stretch, have stretched onto the, to the new year, people would start to feel it. Re, like really, you know, viewers would start to feel it. But, you know, you're going to see some of your favorite shows that normally would have come back now are, are either getting pushed or won't be coming to the new year. Some of the bigger movies like The Next Mission Impossible is moving to 2025. You know, this was sort of the do or die week for a lot of these big, big movies that, that you know, would have had to have been pushed uh, even further. And so I think you'll see a limited slate next year. You'll probably start to feel it early in next year where the things you were expecting aren't necessarily going to be there. Right. I guess the pressure was on to get a deal done. That was that was pretty obvious. Uh, what I mean, tell me a bit about Suits, because you just mentioned it earlier. Now, I have to confess that Suits is one of those shows my wife watched all of it, so I never got to see it. One of those things you she watched the whole thing, so I ever never actually got a chance to watch it. But what a big success it's been, too. And you you were in that in the 2011 season as Devin, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just saw a Zoom they did with all the writers and they had just sort of went through, um, you know, the, that whole process. And, you know, it's Netflix has been one of those places that, you know, it's done the same for Schitt's Creek and a bunch of, you know, Kim's Convenience, a bunch of our shows here in Canada where, you know, people just get to know the show because of Netflix. And Netflix is one of those platforms where you're not necessarily looking at new series. You're looking at, you know, the people were looking at Friends and Rediscovering Friends, which is now one of the most popular shows on, on any streaming platform that you can find it. You know, it's just one of those things that people go back to uh, all the time. But Suits was one of those things that just happened to, you know, had, had a really good, successful broadcast run. Uh, and then it was one of those things that really, you know, spoke to the Netflix audience. It's looking for something that's a bit more popcorn-y, soapy, but has a really cool, you know, kind of case of the week, which we call a procedural show, right? You know, you know, you, you, you follow these characters each and every week. There's a bit of character development, but ultimately you're there for the definitive story that happens per episode. And it was just one of those things that it doesn't take itself too seriously. It's very entertaining. All the actors are really good. The high, you know, high production value. And people just got a hold of it. And Netflix's algorithm did its thing, spoke to that audience. And, you know, ultimately, it's not like it was one season. They had like seven or eight seasons. So there's so many episodes that people can just binge through. It's one of those things that becomes very, very addictive and is why streaming and the streaming model is so successful. Right. And also why, for those who were behind it, uh, it, it wasn't exactly paying off, perhaps, for a lot of the people on the show the way it might have in the past. And that was part of the issue here. Yeah, I think so. So you look at a show like Seinfeld that, you know, would have had TV syndication, you know, you're making a ton of money. And look, I'm sure they're doing okay. Um, but at the same time, I think now hopefully they've negotiated, you know, a newer agreement where if this if Suits gets sold again, uh, or, or even if it's like it's been watched like a certain amount of times, you know, the, the writers and the producers are going to see a bit and the actors are going to see a bit more of that that money. Um, and that's part of the reason that, you know, that was certainly the suit's case was certainly used as a, a test case for why these things needed to change and why things need to be renegotiated. Well, Julian, I'm glad it's all over. Uh, good luck with what it, with your future projects. I appreciate your time tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to come back anytime you need me. This, by the way, is not a light topic. Uh, what prompts people to leave this country and join 
a terrorist group like Islamic State? And what do you do with citizens of your country when they find themselves being held in camps or in prisons in Syria, such as what happened to all many Canadians when Islamic State collapsed, right? It's a question that's dogged the federal government for years now. Um, and they have started welcoming or br- welcoming, bringing people back. They have started repatriating some who were in these uh, prison camps. So mainly because as Canadian citizens, I mean, how long can you leave them there for became a question. And there was challenges. There were court challenges uh, in terms of their rights to be able to come home. One of them is a 51-year-old named Kimberly Pullman. She left BC in 2015 to join ISIS. She was arrested by Kurdish fighters in Syria in 2019 and detained for her alleged association to ISIS before being released and repatriated to Canada in October of last year. She was arrested on arrival. Again, it was part of a long campaign arguing that prisoners such as Pullman deserve to be treated as Canadian citizens and freed from what were called inhumane conditions in Syria. Now, Pullman has always maintained that she regretted joining ISIS from the outset, uh, publicly portraying herself as a victim who was lured to Syria by a man she met online and realized her mistake upon arriving in ISIS territory. Uh, In a letter to Canadians, she wrote that she was an innocent woman who only wanted to help kids and ended up with, quote, bad people. Here's what she had to say in a 2019 interview with Global shortly after she was captured. I've been trying to get out since about maybe two weeks after I arrived. Well, uh, she hasn't been charged with any criminal offenses, and these uh, are all allegations. What I'm about to talk about are all allegations. Uh, Instead, authorities, when she landed, they sought a peace bond. They're seeking a peace bond that would limit her freedom and activities. And part of that process involved a 122-page RCMP report that was released on Tuesday, yesterday, that paints a very different picture of her time with ISIS than the one she's painting. It alleges that she was part of an all-female battalion of the Islamic State that provided weapons training to other women uh, before she was assigned to an ISIS medical unit where she treated wounded ISIS members. Um, Women, it's now better understood, weren't just so-called ISIS brides. Some of them played very active roles in the group, uh, as these allegations would suggest. Here's security expert Jessica Davis. There is a really powerful stereotype about women not being involved in violence and political violence. And to a certain extent, the women of the Islamic State have benefited from that stereotype. Global News investigative journalist Stuart Bell traveled to Syria to meet Pullman in 2019 and has reported extensively on this topic and on these latest developments as well. And he joins me. Stuart, thank you so much. Hey, Ben. How you doing? Uh, This is a really interesting story. I mean, we knew a bit about Kimberly Pullman when she was brought back to Canada, when she was repatri- repatriated. Um, but what was merged yesterday, what, what you found in these documents is is pretty, pretty shocking. Uh, tell me a bit about, about who Kimberly Pullman, who we now, at least the allegations, who we now believe her to be. Yeah, well, we're finally getting, at last, uh, a different perspective on the women of ISIS. And uh, for since I guess 2018 was when I first went over and found the first Canadian women that were um, imprisoned in Syria, uh, accused of being ISIS members. Uh, we've been hearing the same story, which is that they were naive. They're, they married husbands who forced them to go to Syria. Uh, they didn't know what ISIS was until they got there, and then they regretted it and immediately wanted to come back. Now, um, you know, that was a convenient narrative for people that were trying to get out of prison camps in Syria and get back to Canada. But, uh, and in some cases, it may be true. I think there are a few cases of Canadian 
women who were involved with ISIS who do actually fit that um, that description, but uh, it's not all of them. And um, as we're seeing now, the RCMP has been investigating some of these women, and we're finally getting a glimpse of the results of those investigations. And some of it is quite is quite starkly in contrast with what we've been told. Kimberly Pullman, um, I, I met her in Syria in 2019, shortly after she was captured there as of yesterday. Uh, we're getting to finally publish what we have been hearing about her, which was that uh, she wasn't uh, so much a naive person who didn't know what she was getting into. She had researched ISIS quite carefully before she went over. Uh, she knew what she was getting into, and she was deeply involved in um in ISIS when she was in Syria. And, you know, this is, these are the allegations of the RCMP. I should point out this hasn't been, she hasn't been charged with anything. She hasn't been convicted of anything. These allegations have uh, been tabled in court as part of a peace bond process to try and restrict her activities in the name of public safety. But it does give us a look at what the RCMP uh, has found in its inquiries into what she was up to. It's interesting to read what you've written about uh, the process before she went, because you can see hints of, of radicalization that aren't unlike the same kind of radicalization that sort of young men were going through that were running off to join ISIS, who've certainly been granted a lot less sympathy than some of the others in these cases. Yeah, I mean, her family members, uh, she has three children. Her family uh, were interviewed by the RCMP as part of this investigation, and they described a sort of a online radicalization that began around 2014 when they began to notice that she was uh, expressing more extreme beliefs uh, she was turning to more extreme ideology and seeking out uh, extremist religious leaders and even some of the comments she was making for example when um, in 2014 when uh, an uh, isis inspired uh, attacker uh, killed uh, Nathan Serlo at, mm -hmm. in Ottawa. Um, she sort of downplayed that, and and there was another incident in which there was a quite well known um, ISIS video where they uh, took a captured Jordan, Jordanian pilot and put him in a cage and set it on fire. Mm -hmm. And in those incidents, she, according to her family, expressed uh, you know views that were suggested to them that she was leaning towards the more extremist interpretation of things. And she began to tell uh, friends that she was uh, thinking of going to Syria. She asked a close friend uh, to go with her, even that they would build some kind of a utopia together. And and when she was over, she when she got to Syria, she uh, told her family that she had pledged uh, or a friend, I think it was, allegiance to uh, to ISIS. So you can see a kind of descent into that ideology that began just as ISIS was kind of sort of becoming very prominent in mid-2014, and that resulted in her going there in, about a year later, in the middle of 2015. Yeah, and, and if you look at the allegations of what she was involved in when she was there, she was very much not, according to the allegations, not an innocent bystander by any stretch of the imagination during her time embedded with ISIS. Yeah, and the RCMP, it's interesting. They do have, they've collected quite a bit of evidence, you can see, uh, that includes... Um, uh, documents seized on the battlefield, uh, such as there was a registry of, of people arriving into Syrian territory and staying at a particular guest house for, for foreign women. Uh, and they've also um, managed to get some of the other Canadian ISIS uh, 
well, one woman to speak, uh, as well as other ISIS members that recall her and her husband. And what they talk about is that she um, she had spoken about uh, being part of the all-female battalion of ISIS, which was, was a group headed by an American uh, from Kansas who had converted and become very extreme. And uh, she headed this, this organization that uh, gave... Uh, firearms and explosives training uh, to uh, to women, and then sent them out to perform various tasks for ISIS. And the RCMP are alleging that um, this is something that Pullman went through after she initially arrived in Syria, and then she was assigned to a medical uh, role where she would go to the ISIS-controlled hospitals and treat wounded ISIS fighters. And uh, later on, she. Um, she she married a uh, different uh, she'd gone over initially uh, to marry a man who had been a member of the al-shabaab uh, organization in somalia he allegedly taken part in uh, the attack in 2013 in kenya that um, was on the, the westgate mall right where i think 60 or so people were killed uh, pullman then married uh, when she was in syria another guy from trinidad who was uh, a member of the ISIS explosives team and she would apparently bring meals for the team. And, and she, there were allegations that she'd moved weapons for ISIS and also served as an informant for the, the ISIS secret police. Um, the, the RCMP allegations are that she had, you know, when people would speak ill of ISIS, she would report them and they would be arrested and, uh, and ISIS would deal with them. So it's, it's a much different, picture of uh, a much deeper involvement and contribution to ISIS than um, than anything that we've been led to believe um, up until now. Stuart, in these cases, one would expect that Global Affairs would have vetted her before she came back, uh, because right now there are no criminal charges against her, right? I mean, she's, under the, other than the terms of this peace bond, she's free to do She's free to roam, so to speak, but uh, that must bring a certain, knowing what we know now, that must bring a certain sense of insecurity you know well i mean uh one in terms of global affairs uh she was among the first that was brought back because she had she had claimed to have uh medical issues and so even though um initially global affairs did not want to bring any of the women back they agreed to bring her back because uh she was reporting to have some medical troubles and need to be dealt with so um uh, yes, I mean this is this is the issue um, throughout the history of Canadian national security. One of the big problems has been what they call returnees, and these are people that go overseas and come back. Um, they come back sometimes with weapons training, with connections, uh, with the ability to uh, to recruit other people, to indoctrinate people, and to conduct attacks if if so be. And as we uh, as we know from recent uh, attacks in Canada, uh, it doesn't take much. I mean, uh, the sort of a lone actor uh, terrorist can use anything. Knives, uh, we've seen in Toronto, hammer uh, and automobiles as weapons to 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 go after people. So, um, yeah, so that's why, I mean, the, the options for police are to charge uh, somebody and then they go on trial and go to prison if if it is proven, um, or what they've been doing uh, more often is getting peace bonds, which is a little easier than a, a criminal trial. 
And what that involves is just convincing a court that the person might commit a terrorist offense, uh, that there's enough you know, reasonable evidence to show that, and uh, therefore they can impose restrictions on them. And in this case, Kimberly Pullman has to wear uh, an ankle monitor. She's uh, a curfew. She cannot drive a car because of the, the risk, as you can imagine. And, um, you know, and there's a number, I think 20 or plus restrictions that she's under that that should, you know, to some extent satisfy security issues. But as we know from the past, these peace bonds don't always work. Um, Aaron Driver, uh, I think it was 2017, was under a peace bond, and he went out and tried to, you know, he built a bomb and tried to uh, commit a suicide bombing. So it's an imperfect kind of um, tool, but it's what the police are left with at this point. It certainly puts... Uh... I mean, it puts the federal government, there's been a lot of pressure to bring the women and children back from these camps. Clearly, they're Canadian citizens. We can't necessarily, they can't necessarily be left there forever and ever. At the same time, as we find out more details about perhaps what some of them were up to while over there, it creates an even greater dilemma, one would think, around security in Canada and the right of a citizen to come back, um, depending on what it is that was uncovered about their activities overseas. Yeah, I mean, there's two questions, really. One is a, ma- a matter of national security, and that is uh, uh, we know these people have been with ISIS, and they have received, in some cases, training and indoctrination. They have connections with people who who might uh, urge them to carry out some kind of attack. So there's that issue that that needs to be monitored so that that doesn't happen. But there's also a question of justice. I mean, uh, these are people that uh, that chose to align themselves with ISIS, which is at war with Canada, which is contrary to almost every value that Canada stands for, um, and which committed atrocities in Syria and Iraq. And, uh, you know, we, we have, of the nine women that have been brought back so far, two of them have been charged, but uh, seven haven't. And so that's a, it's a separate issue, is to what extent are these women going to be held to account for the contribution that they made to um, an organization that just committed horrendous atrocities. Right. And meanwhile, there are many other, I mean, not many, but there are other Canadians still over there uh, waiting to, hoping to come back, one presumes. But also, it seems like in some senses, the, the sort of the ISIS bride trope has been has been convenient for some to come back and cover up what it is they may have been up to. Well, the men, obviously still considered to be security threats, are left there as well. So it's 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 a thorny situation. Yeah, I don't know. I think the, I don't quite understand the thinking of global affairs, why they chose to bring back women and not men. I think it may have had to do with that some of the women had children, but some of the women that came back did not have children. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. But uh, yeah, there are uh, at least four men that are still in custody um, that, uh, you know, whether or not they will be put on trial in Syria itself um, or whether they'll be brought back eventually. We don't know. The only one who's come back uh, so far has been repatriated actually to the United States. So he was Canadian. Uh, the U.S. had uh, implicated him crimes um, that affected them, and they brought him back, and he's been convicted and serving a life sentence. And there's a number, there's a, a couple of women, we believe, they're still there that uh, Global Affairs so far has not brought back in one case because they believe she's too severe a security threat. 
So the issue is not over. There's still a number of these people to come back, and um, and we'll have to see how the government chooses to deal with it. Stuart, uh, thank you so much, as always. Thanks, Ben. Today, November 8th, is National Indigenous Veterans Day. The words of Alan Roy. He's a Métis Canadian Forces veteran, and he was at an event today in Toronto. Here's what he had to say. It was an honour for me to be able to continue a military tradition. The Indigenous um, contributions to defence of this country and to this, this continent have been stalwart. It's, they've always been here. Of course, today is a time to honour the thousands of Indigenous soldiers who served this country, including in both world wars, Korea, and then Afghanistan and others that ensued. About 12,000, it's estimated, served in the First and Second World Wars and the Korean War. Now, for decades, and this is well documented now, Indigenous veterans weren't allowed to participate in a lot of what we consider to be the main Remembrance Day ceremonies, like laying a wreath at the National War Memorial, that until 1995. Uh, So being shut out of those activities, in 1994, a group of veterans came together in Winnipeg, where the first memorial to Indigenous veterans had been erected that year to uh, basically to honour Indigenous veterans and all their contributions to this country over the years. And of course, 30 years later, uh, there were ceremonies held right across Canada today to mark the day. Um, Based on self-identification, there are almost 3,000 Indigenous people actively serving in the Canadian Armed Forces these days. Uh, One of them who's not there now, but served for a very long time, 36 years in the Royal Canadian Navy, is Honorary Captain Debbie Eisen. Uh, She's from the Bouchouana First Nation near Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, She is now again the Honorary Captain Navy affiliated with His Majesty's Canadian ship Margaret Brooke. She began her naval career back in 1975, so she's seen a lot, and she has a lot, a lot of thoughts. She's fought for a very long time uh, for recognitions for Indigenous service people and veterans as well. And she joins me now, Honorary Captain Eisen. Thank you so much for your time tonight. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you for asking me. Indeed, this is an important day, isn't it? I mean, we we have, you know, Remembrance Day is coming up in just a few, but this has always been an important day since it really got off the ground back in the early 90s. It is a very important day, but one thing that I wanted to stress is that in our communities, we honor veterans every single day of the year. We don't just choose one day. To have a day, especially for Indigenous veterans, is very humbling to me because I'm so proud to wear the uniform and I'm so happy that I can still work with the Canadian Armed Forces and still be an ambassador for the Navy because the Navy has done so much for me. I grew up with the Navy. They've helped me to become the person that I am today as lo- along with the eld- other elders that I've spoken with in my community but certainly the Navy helped me to grow into the person that I am today. Much has changed since you first enlisted. There's a a great story about why you enlisted. I know you were made to say it at one point, uh, just about sort of how you found yourself in the Navy. Oh, yeah. Well, when I joined back in 1975, I was working for the Canadian Forces Recruiting Group. And so on Remembrance Day, we went to TV Ontario. And with me was a a colonel, army colonel, and a PPCLI infantry sergeant, and then myself. I was the chief petty officer. And so they asked the colonel why he joined the military. And he said, well, my great-grandfather, my grandfather, my father made a career of it, and I wanted to keep that in the family. And meanwhile, I'm sitting at the end of the table thinking, oh, no, 
<laughs> what am I going to say? So then uh, she went to the PPCLI sergeant who was a visible minority, and she asked him why she joined. And he said, well, my family came here to Canada when I was six years old. And when I told my mother that I was joining the Canadian Forces, she said, what an honorable thing to do to join the Army and protect the country that has done so much for our family. So then it was my turn, and I thought, oh, my goodness, what am I going to say? And I thought, well, you know what? You got to tell the truth. So when she asked me, I said, well, I don't have as great a story as the colonel or the, the sergeant, but I said, when I was 17 years old, I graduated high school, and I was working as a waitress in Sault Ste. Marie, and I accidentally slipped and dropped a bowl of soup and a sandwich on a businessman, and I thought they were going to fire me, so I quit instead, found myself at the unemployment office, and within two months, I was on my way to my basic training. That's how I joined the Canadian Forces, and I have not looked back. You know, um, Indigenous peoples in this country have such a rich history with the Canadian military, but still, when you would have joined in 1975, I can imagine there were some tough times. There were tough times, but really mostly because I was woman. Mm -hmm. And so back in the, back in that time, I really didn't identify as an Indigenous person. I was very shy and very quiet. And a lot of people who know me probably won't believe that. But back in those days, I didn't say too much and I just kind of kept kept to myself and kept my head down and did what I had to do. But the hardship was mostly being a woman in the Canadian Forces because it was relatively new. And, um, you know, my first posting was to the depot in Moncton, uh, New Brunswick, and I was one of two military women on the base. So uh, it was a learning curve for me. And, uh, you know, you, you learn to, as you get older and you learn to stand up for yourself and you learn how to carry yourself. And then... Uh, you move on in your career. And then it started maybe a little bit later that I started to get more comments about Indigenous women. There was one particular uh, supervisor asked me why I was not at home. Shouldn't all good Indian women be at home having children and looking after their husbands? That particular day, he sent me home in tears. And my husband of 47 years, he was also military, said to me, why do you let these people get to you? You know you're better than that. And so I vowed from that day on no one would send me home in tears ever again. And I also vowed that when I became a supervisor, I would treat people with dignity and respect. And that's something that I've really tried to do throughout my career, but also to help share our culture you know, education got us into this mess and education got us out. Those were the words of the former Senator Murray Sinclair. And I love the way that he speaks. And he really hit the nail on the head when he said that. So I just go out and share my culture with anyone who wants to learn. And so when I started doing that in the Canadian Forces, it started to open doors. And I wanted to make it easier for the young people coming behind me. You know, if we were able to share a culture and, and educate people a little bit about who we are as indig Indigenous people, then it might make things easier and it might ease the road a little bit. So that's simply what I've been trying to do and just I am who I am. Yeah, I, I was reading too that you've had a lot of good times. When someone asks you about the tough times and the good times, the good times fills up a lot of space. It sure does, you know. And, and the hard times, like I said, you know, 
a couple of weeks into my uh, military career, I fell in love with a pair of beautiful blue eyes, uh, who is from Jabukto, Califax here. He's a settler. You know, those were, were some of the good times for sure. You know, 47 years of marriage. Yep. And um, the tough times are when we weren't together. You know, a military couple raising two daughters, it was hard. And, and you learn to overcome those. And one of the things that uh, my mom taught me was that marriage is never 50-50. It's 70-30, 90-10, 60-40, and it's not always the same person giving. So you learn to give and take, and you learn to work together. That's how we look at things. And, you know, my husband is my rock. He's, he's the guy that I go to when I'm, when I'm having a little down day. So... When you look at all the things that have changed over the course of your career, that long career that began in 1975, uh, do you feel like you made the kind of progress that you were hoping to make? Uh, absolutely. I think, you know, when I think back to when I first joined, women who were just able to uh, have children and stay in uniform. And then when you were in uniform and expecting a child, you were six weeks before you had your baby and back to work eight weeks after. And so things have changed along that line for women, especially. But also, I'm very proud of the fact that I was part of a team of many Indigenous people who advocated for Aboriginal men to wear their hair in a braid. And this is something that's very spiritual for us. And, and Canadian Armed Forces is... I think attempting to make huge strides in allowing us to follow our spirituality, uh, to be able to allow us to handle our traditions and our customs and practice our ceremonies uh, as smudging. And I know now that uh, on board ships, there's smudging kits on board ships for anyone who wants to have smudging ceremonies. I'm often invited to change of command ceremonies to do smudgings for change of command ceremonies and things like that. So, Things have really changed. Are they there perfectly? Absolutely not. There's always room for improvement. And, you know, one of the things of racism and discrimination, I know that the Canadian Armed Forces works very hard to eliminate that, but it's not 100%. So those are the things that we really have to work hard at educating people. And, and one of the things that I have been doing is providing the blanket exercise for many of the Navy personnel, especially here in uh, Halifax. And um, it tells the history of the Indigenous people before colonization, what happened during colonization, how we got to the point where we're at today, and the effects of intergenerational trauma. So this is something that's the basis of education for people that they can use to know the true history, the true dark history for the Indigenous people of Canada, and build upon that with truth and reconciliation. That's the truth part. The reconciliation part is what you have to do to learn to move ahead. And then we call it here reconciliation. The Canadian Forces is on a very good journey of that. Some of the places you've been to, Debbie, I was just looking at uh, post 9-11 on the HMCS Iroquois. You're in Rwanda. You're in New Zealand. I mean, you've, you've seen so much as well. I have. And each one of those trips was special to me. There's memories from each and every one of them. But one of the things that I, I never really thought of when I was younger, but the, the older I get, I think the wiser you get. <laughs> and uh, you think, I'm so proud to have done a small part in helping to keep Canada a place where we can practice our own spirituality, our own religions. We can work the way we want to work. We can do the things that we want to do without fear of reprisal, without 
having to worry about the country being taken over. And, you know, I'm a grandmother and someday I hope to be a great grandmother. And I want to, to be able to let my grandchildren know that their grandmother and their grandfather have done their part. And also, you know, as an Indigenous woman, many men, Indigenous men have been recognized um, throughout their career in the Canadian Forces, but not so much for Indigenous women. So I have uh, sort of taken it upon myself to write a, a memoir, I guess you call it. I call it Magra's Journey mm-hmm. because my, my grandchildren call me Magra, which is grandma backwards, but that's right, a whole other story. That's yeah. Other story. So, yeah. yeah, but um, I want them to know their grandmother's history, their Kokum's history. I want them to know what I did in the Canadian Forces, helping with some of the changes that has happened and, and just some of the things that I've done because I want them to know who their grandmother was and, would, and yeah. who she is. What would you like listeners to know tonight uh, from your perspective? Uh, just as we mark today and we're going to mark Remembrance Day, as you mentioned, every day is veterans are honored within the community. But what would you like listeners to know tonight? I would like listeners to know and to realize that when Indigenous men and women, they traveled thousands of kilometers to sign up and to fight for Turtle Island, they didn't have to. They signed those treaties that they would fight for Turtle Island, so they lived up to their end of the treaties. They were not treated the same way. And I would like listeners to know that we are here to look after Mother Earth. We are here to walk side by side with the people living here on Turtle Island. And I would like people to know that when you look at an Indigenous person, never mind just a veteran, but when you look at an Indigenous person, I would like them to look at them and say, this person is doing great things for our country and not think of uh, automatically the negative things. Because there's so many Indigenous people that have done so many great things that I just have people that I can look up to and mentor. Well, I certainly hope you count yourself amongst them. Honorary Captain Eisen, I really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. The Prime Minister was out today talking about the situation in um, the Middle East in a very passionate way. I mean, it's been a certainly... It's been a difficult situation for politicians to find the right tone on this one. I think they're, uh, but he says Canadians are hurting as they see images and hear stories of the violence and devastation in the region. Uh, again, he's watching those images. He says yesterday marked exactly one month since renewed violence erupted with Hamas uh, terrorists launching attacks on Israeli civilians. And Israel, of course, has responded with a whole lot of force in the week since. Uh, soldiers now surrounding uh, Gaza City. They're in Gaza City trying to root out uh, Hamas uh, as we speak tonight with the death of course, mounting and a humanitarian crisis there as well. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say. This is why we are calling for a humanitarian pause. A humanitarian pause is going to allow all the hostages to be released, allow us to continue doing the work of getting all foreign nationals out of Gaza. We got 75 of 80 Canadians out yesterday, which is solid progress, but there is so much more to do. Right. Uh, There are a whole bunch of different things at hand here. There are Canadians in Gaza waiting to get out along with other foreign nationals. Obviously, a lot of civilians in Gaza still fleeing the north to go south as the uh, fighting and bombardment continues there. There are the hostages being held, including, we believe, two Canadians. More than 200 hostages still being held by Hamas in Gaza, it's believed. So a lot of different things going on here. Um, And and the idea of, of, of a humanitarian pause, I mean, there's been a lot of pressure on the Israeli government to do this. And they've been resisting it so far. They want those hostages 
hostages released, right? And of course, there are calls for a ceasefire as well, which the Israeli government has completely written off for the time being. A ceasefire with who, you always ask. Um, the foreign ministers today were in are in Japan for a G7 foreign ministers meeting. Uh, Antony Blinken, the U.S. For- Secretary of State, was there. Uh, they have a unified stance on this. Here's what he had to say. G7 ministers reaffirmed our staunch support for Israel's right and obligation to defend itself and seek to ensure the attacks of October 7th can never happen again in accordance with international humanitarian law. Uh, that is Secretary of State Antony Blinken today in Tokyo. Uh, I want to get a better idea here of the military side of this, because clearly what's going on here is is an Israeli military initiative. And a lot of what's being described and asked to be cut back is, is Israel on the offensive after the horrific attack on October the 7th. Uh, so to help me do that is Joe Varner. He's Deputy Director of the Conference of Defense Associations. He's a former adjunct scholar at West Point's Modern War Institute and author of Canada's Asia-Pacific Security Dilemma. And he was also an advisor, um, a director of policy to the senior advisor and a director of policy to uh, Minister of National Defense at the time, uh, Peter McKay from 2008 to 2014. Uh, Joe Varner, thank you. Thank you, Ben, for inviting me. Uh, this is a real challenge, uh, isn't it? I, mean, I can only imagine that the Israeli military has spent a lot of time uh, gaming a invasion of, of Gaza, uh, what they're up to right now. But we've seen it quite systematic. They're now moved into Gaza City. I guess the plan is to cut off, cut Gaza in half, and then surround Gaza City and go in. That that is a lot harder. Yes, that's yeah, that's a lot harder than it sounds. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely the plan. There's probably three or four Israeli divisions engaged in this battle right now. Uh, one to to you know isolate the battlefield around Gaza itself, and then to split Gaza in half and take control of the coastal area as well, so that they've they've got it completely under a state of siege, and then move into Gaza City, uh, which they've done, which is 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 the center of uh, the uh, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad's terror network, and to dismantle that, uh, particularly uh, getting getting their command and control, getting into their tunnels. They've got about five six hundred kilometers of tunnels underneath Gaza City, um, and and they use those to store weapons, uh, uh, command centers, um, to launch rockets, and and to hold hostages. So yeah. it's a very bitter street by street, um, tunnel by tunnel fighting, and and at the same time there are about three hundred rockets fired almost daily at uh, Israel. Right, and then of course the hostage the situation with the hostages. People don't know where they. I mean, I don't think they know where they are. They imagine they're clearly in the tunnel system. It was described by one of them who was released, uh, but that creates a whole different dynamic for for the forces going into Gaza City as well. I would imagine. Absolutely, and they're likely dispersed. So they're they're likely not all in one place. They're dispersed throughout that system, and and maybe elsewhere in the Gaza Strip. And so a lot of intelligence resources right now are going into trying find find the hostages, uh, particularly through communications and and cameras and and a variety of different techniques that they're using to try and locate these people so that they can be rescued safely. And there have been some safe rescues. But it's uh, it's a bitter uh, situation where the Israelis uh, are at great risk themselves in trying to retrieve these hostages, and in fact they're using the the uh, attacks and the strikes and the and the battle on the ground to put pressure on Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad to actually release the hostages in exchange for a ceasefire. 
I know there are still a lot of, although the civilians have been asked numerous times to head south, there are still a number of thousands, tens of thousands, apparently, of civilians in and around Gaza City. Uh, that that adds a whole different challenge to this as well. I mean, you have a, a military such as Israel's that has to be uh, always mindful of the civilian population. At the same time, you have Hamas using the civilian population as a shield who are keenly aware of what, what the propaganda effect, unfortunately, of dead civilians looks like. Yeah, and we've already seen, I mean, we've already seen them try that with the hospital that they actually hit with their own rocket. Um, and and so, I mean, it's it's not abnormal for uh, Hamas. They, they prevented people from retreating. They warned them not to, to uh, evacuate. They've gone uh, to great lengths to move people by their own terrorists by uh, uh, ambulance, uh, they found rocket launch sites in schools, in uh, in and around hospitals, uh, the tunnels that uh, that they're holding hostages in, and that they're operating from, and their command centers are underneath hospitals and mosques. So they're very much using the civilian population as a human shield, hoping that that will dissuade the the Israelis. And and that any civilian casualties will will cause uh, outrage uh, internationally uh, to try and force the Israeli attacks to stop. Yeah. Uh, but but unfortunately, and the unfortunate thing is, if the Israelis let up, one they open themselves up to a counterattack by Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and two uh, they put the hostages at at further risk uh, of uh, of not being released. Right. I, I noted that someone pointed out that Hamas had never built any bomb shelters for their own civilian population, but had lots of tunnels for their fighters. Um, there's been lots of talk here about about uh, about Israel's tactics going in. And certainly there are calls for humanitarian pauses. There have been numerous calls for ceasefires. You're getting it from the United Nations. There are clearly concerns about the civilian population of Gaza. I think if you live in a country like Canada and have never come face to face with war, the images that we're seeing from Gaza can be incredibly upsetting and disturbing. Uh, but militarily speaking, and you've pointed this out, how do you negotiate a pause with a group like Hamas or, or a ceasefire with a group like Hamas, given their stated goals in this in this whole thing? Well, I think in the last four days, the Israelis have uh, given them about four hours a day to evacuate and let uh, vehicles with uh, humanitarian aid into the area. And so so those, you know, four-hour pauses are, are taking place to uh, move uh, casualties out and uh, to bring food and water and supplies in and allow people to, to evacuate. And in fact, the Israelis are actually you know, with their position of their forces are actually protecting uh, civilians as they evacuate from uh, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad who don't want them to leave. Uh, it's 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 a very sad state of affairs. And as you pointed out, they don't build bomb shelters for their own people. The Israelis take uh, great pains to avoid s- civilian casualties. You may not see that on television, but they send text messages telling people to evacuate buildings, they do what are called rooftop knocks, where they they drop a small explosive on the roof that goes bang, that tells people get out of the building because it's going to be hit. Uh, they they open up these corridors to allow evacuations, and they they make it very clear on social media that you have to evacuate this area because because the Israeli army is going to operate there. So yeah. they go out of their way to avoid civilian casualties. 
that is not the case with Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Yeah, and it's not what we're hearing from sort of bodies like the United Nations either. I mean, the the, the tone of it has gotten quite, I mean, critical over the past little while, certainly uh, demanding that this stop somehow, that this come to an end. Uh, and I, I just, I, I can see where the, the, the sentiment comes from, but it feels unrealistic both politically and militarily at this point. Yeah, keep in mind, we're also seeing a psychological dimension uh, to this war play out in social media and in the media in general. Some of the shots that we're seeing and some of the video clips that we're seeing uh, are are not uh, accurate. And and indeed, some of them are, are much older clips. Some of them, some of the clips, there's recently a clip of a, a dog shivering and, and allegedly being terrified uh, to eat. And it's from several years ago and absolutely nothing to do with the conflict. Right. Uh, so there is a psychological do- uh, uh, dimension playing out in, in Western media and in the Arab uh, world uh, that is, you know, causing a lot of pressure to be put on the United States and Israel to stop. Um, but you know, if, if you look at it this way, like I said earlier, some, uh, 1400 Israelis, uh, you know, butchered, uh, that's the equivalent of half of America's losses in Vietnam. And if you think about, you know, September 11th, 3000 Americans killed, uh, they invaded uh, Afghanistan and went to war with Iraq. Uh, the Israelis have a right to defend themselves and protect their people. And right now, uh, they're doing what they have to do to do that. Joe, you you were looking at this from a, from a geopolitical standpoint in an article that you wrote that was that covered a lot of ground. And clearly, I mean, we talk about this as Hamas and Israel, but you see the fingerprints of other nations in here, the Iran specifically, uh, but also Russia. I mean, uh, this the, the timing of this attack can't be ignored, and the rapprochement that was going on between Israel and the Saudis can't be ignored. Uh, there was, there, It felt like things were moving in the right direction until this happened, and suddenly everything was off the table. Yeah, I think there's no question that, that Iran's fingerprints are all over this. Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas are, are funded, they're trained, and they're equipped uh, quite often by, by Iran. Uh, they're also aided by Russia. Uh, and, and in this case, some of their weapons came from North Korea, it's it's a part of of the you know geopolitical chess game that's taking part in the Middle East, where the Iranians are very much trying to push the United States out of the region, and and want to destroy Israel, and so they have a series of proxy proxy militias in Syria, Iraq, and in Yemen uh, that they use uh, to do this, like Hezbollah, like the Houthis. Um, and, and, and that includes Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Quds Force allegedly planned, uh, uh, the, the operation and provided intelligence, uh, the, the for, for the, uh, uh Hamas uh, surprise attack on the 7th of October. And, and there can be very little doubt about that. Uh, it was a very well planned and executed uh, attack raid on Israeli communities, and in fact, there are suggestions that the Russians or reports that the Russians had satellites over the area uh, some weeks before uh, it actually took place. They'd retest satellites to look at the Gaza Strip, uh, which which means that they had some forewarning of this as well. 
And so, you know, th- this, this helps the Russians by distracting the United States and the West from uh, the situation in Ukraine. Um, it, it forces uh, a wedge between the United States and its, its allies. And I think that will be a temporary wedge, but we'll see as time, time evolves. Um, and you also see China interjecting itself uh, into the region. It had brokered a deal between the Saudis and, and the Iranians to talk uh, for the first time in many, many years. And uh, China was not very happy about the United States and Saudi Arabia and Israel getting cozy again. So a number of factors have come together here, uh, very sadly, right. uh, that have provoked this this war. And what we've seen in the last 30 days, I think, is, uh, I mean, I would think it, unfortunately, uh, as a tactical success for those who would oppose uh, any kind of peace between uh, the Sunni states and, in, in, you know, the from the Abraham agreements to Saudi Arabia and Israel, that, that this has, in fact, worked out exactly the way that Iran and Hamas would have hoped to some extent, despite all the all the horrific death and destruction that we've seen over the last month. It's absolutely been a tactical victory, in a sense, for Iran on on the diplomatic front and they're trying to push that advantage and 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 we'll see what happens the u.s forces in syria and iraq have been attacked something like 40 times in the last uh several days Um, there are about 50 americans that have become casualties Uh, and you're seeing the houthis engage uh, in in uh, long-range missile attacks from Yemen on mm-hmm. on Egypt and and in fact uh, the Saudi Arabians actually took down one of the missiles, which is why I would say that you know this this is a tactical victory for Iran in a sense. Uh, it's a delay of 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 those those peace accords moving forward, but I don't think it's going to be a permanent one. I mean, the Israelis, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf states have been sharing intelligence for some time. Uh, even before the Abraham Accords. So, you know, I think that process is going to continue because the the big threat at the end of the day uh, to the Sunni states is not Israel. The big threat at the end of the day is uh, is Iran and uh, Iranian influence being spread throughout the region. And, you know, once they do, you know, they succeed in doing away with Israel, they're quite happy to turn on on uh, the Arabs and and uh, the Sunni uh, kingdoms. Uh, well, Joe, thank you so much. You're welcome. Isn't interesting? I mean, this has been talked about a lot, and I was just curious about how feasible it really is in all circumstances. So we know that there is a housing shortage um, in this country. Obviously, we've been talking about it a lot. We know there's been a big rental crunch as well. We need more rental units available because. There's the what's out there. There's not enough out there. There's certainly not enough that's affordable out there, and uh, prices have been skyrocketing to the point where if people find themselves without a place, uh, or if they somehow manage lose the place they're in, it's almost impossible to afford to rent something else in the community they live in. Um, the federal government's been working on a bunch of stuff. Yesterday, you may have seen uh, they announced they're going to build thousands of homes on public lands and cities right across the country. Here's Jean-Yves Duclos. Canada Lands Company, through its agreements with developers is enabling the construction of an additional 2,800 housing units by the end of March 2024 in a number of different communities. This includes housing projects in Calgary, Edmonton, St. John's, and Ottawa, 
with a minimum of 300 set aside for affordable housing. Right. That's not going to solve the housing crisis, but it's a start. You use federal land to build affordable housing or build housing, period. But what about all those federal office buildings that aren't nearly as full as they used to be? Maybe they could be turned into rental units, right? Wouldn't that be a good idea? Uh, But is it as easy as it sounds? I mean, uh, you know, how has it been done? I gather it has. I think there's a building in Ottawa called the Slate, which was a government office building in the 70s. It's now residential space. But how common is it? Um, we know in Calgary, for instance, they had huge vacancy rates for office space in downtown Calgary, even just a few years ago, and worked really hard to fix that and to transform those into other things to make them, you know, to fill up the space. You have to, right? It's good for your tax base. It's good for the vibrancy of the community. But what about turning these office buildings into rental units? Someone who knows this subject inside out is Stephen Painter. He's the global building transformation and adaptive reuse leader with the architecture firm Gensler, and he joins me now. Uh, Stephen, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, this has become a very a very hot topic, I think, uh, given what's going on in the market these days. How much are people moving towards this idea of adaptive reuse, which I guess in plain English is using things for uh, for purposes other than which for which they were built? Well, it it's not really a new trend. You know, it's been happening since people converted manufacturing and uh, you know industrial buildings into lofts in the seventies, and now it's just really picking up again as we see the decrease in office attendance and therefore the decrease in office value the opportunity to convert them to something else that is you know more valuable more interesting to the downtowns and um, that's really picked up so it's happening all across north america now and across the rest of the world as well right which would explain your travel travel schedule i assume right people want to know people want to know what are some of the challenges because i think people look at office buildings and think oh big empty space if it's not being used uh, for office workers, then just convert it. But it's simply, it's just not that simple, right? No, we've actually studied over a thousand buildings now, and about 30% of them make good candidates. And we think about half of those will end up being converted. But the big ones, the big opportunities and big challenges are really around how the floor plate lays out. And honestly, simple stuff like, does the building have windows on all sides? And you see a lot of older office buildings that only have windows on the street or on, on two sides if they're on a corner. It just doesn't work for residential. You can't give half of the units no windows. So there's some real kind of deal breakers like that. And then there's some things like the distance from the elevator to the glazing. In an office building, that can be you know, upwards of 60 feet. But if you imagine your one-bed unit that's 60 feet deep and 10 feet wide, it's not exactly desirable. So what we're managing to do now with the algorithm we've built is really hone in on those buildings that are going to work great. Those buildings that have you know 35 feet elevated to glass, they're going to get nice, wide, uh, shallow units with a lot of natural light and a lot of really good space in them. Uh, right. But it's not all of them, but it's enough to make a huge difference. Well, it's interesting how the algorithm works because I guess a lot of a lot of property owners want to know fairly quickly whether it makes sense for them to do this because it is an expensive undertaking, no doubt. What What are some of the factors that go in? You mentioned sort of the physical factors, but there must be other factors around zoning and a bunch of stuff that goes into this as well. There is the, the big ones are really the physical and location. You know, if it doesn't work and it doesn't lay out for units that people want, then nothing else really matters. The zoning we can change, the the costs we can work on, uh, but it's got to be a good layout. It's got to be desirable, and that comes, you know, with the physical aspects. It also comes with location as well. Is it right on transit? Is it near amenities? Is it you know in a downtown that's already got a vibrant mix of use? People are going to pay extra to live there. Um, then it makes the building more viable. But recently, we were also looking at then what the federal programs do. Are they encouraging this? Are they 
you know, adding money to the pot to make it more desirable too. Right, uh, because there are there are different incentives that come into play as well. If you want to make it easier for property owners to un- to embark on these sorts of uh, these sorts of issues, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Calgary is still the gold standard of the incentive programs. Um, we helped the city build that program nearly three years ago now, uh, but they have just uh, announced their seventeenth building uh, under that program. Seventy five dollars a square foot to aid the conversions. 17 buildings already going ahead. And the first five of those, uh, which are pretty near finished construction, is actually going to increase the downtown population by 24%. So it's having a massive impact and they managed to move it ahead really quickly. Other right. cities are looking at it, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, but they're struggling to just make it easy and make it happen, to be honest. Right. I, I guess Calgary was it sort of found itself in that situation even pre-COVID where it really had way too much office space and needed to do something with it. And now other cities, perhaps less so, the Toronto's and the Vancouver's and so on, probably have much lower vacancy rates, but they too are going to have to start looking towards this as well. I mean, you did some, the Calgary uh, situation is a reminder of just how quickly this can be done if the motivation is there. Yeah, exactly. And you know, pre-COVID, Calgary had a about 33% vacancy rate, which is was pretty severe, and that really spurred them to move more quickly. But other cities are heading that direction. Ottawa, for example, and a lot of other cities in Alberta, Edmonton, and so on. And even certain parts of the market in other cities, too. I mean, you mentioned Vancouver. Overall, that market is doing very well, but the downtown Class B market is doing very poorly. So it's more isolated in those cities, but still uh, is a huge drag on the economy and on the number of people. So I think what uh, cities and, and federal government really need to do at the moment is move quickly, like move before it gets as bad as Calgary was. And we need to be able to kind of jump that recession or that um, that real estate recession curve. Right? Let's yeah. jump to the to the regeneration, to the success, and hopefully avoid the, the bottoming out of the market. You raise a really interesting point because this is about uh, about survivability of downtown as well. It's not it's not just it's it's people coming in to replace the office workers that presumably aren't there. And you mentioned the Class yeah. B properties too. I guess the one thing that we what one notices in a place like Vancouver is there is still a lot more new office space coming online, and that no doubt relegates the older office space to a precarious situation. Yeah, exactly. And we saw that in Toronto with large new towers coming online. Um, I think Vancouver has about 5.6 million square feet in the pipeline that will be finished in the next few years. That will about double the uh, existing vacancy in other buildings. And we, we really are seeing tenants go to those new buildings, uh, even because they've signed a lease or because they're just more attractive and better located and better amenitized. And that's going to just exacerbate the problem in the older buildings that honestly pre-COVID weren't desirable. And now people are just saying, why would I go in if that's the office I have to go to? Yeah. And we're seeing, I mean, we're already seeing developers. I was mentioning the Cadillac Fairview situation in Montreal. I know this was a building that was being built, so it's not a conversion uh, per se, but still you're seeing developers make these decisions in real time now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's why we've analyzed so many buildings for, for different developers in different uh, cities as well. It's the ability to make that quick real time decision with good data and good information to do it. It's still, you know, borderline feasible in a lot of buildings, but the, uh, ability to make that decision quickly is is absolutely critical like it's about getting out in front of the market uh, and it's about making this project happen when you can get the financing when you can get the incentives and and do that quickly yeah i guess you don't want to be the last class b office building doing this right 
<laughs> no, although to some degree, what's happened in Calgary is the vacancy in the remaining office stock has actually gone down. Right. And that's partly because they've taken you know, millions of square feet of stock off of the market. And so we, I think the ones that are converting, the ones that are suitable for conversion have got to move quickly. The ones that aren't are probably in a wait and see situation where, you know, will having buildings taken out of the market help them? Or are they really going to be in, in serious problems in the next year or two? Uh, Stephen, there's been a lot of talk. I mean, the federal government owns a lot of governments, period, own a lot of office space, and they're looking to try and alleviate uh, this this affordability and rental crunch as well. Um, is there anything different at play when it comes to government buildings versus sort of uh, the, the other office space that's out there? Well, the government buildings are generally scoring higher on uh, conversion ability. Really? And I think there's a couple of factors for that. It's partly the era that they were built. There's a lot of 70s buildings, and those buildings tend to have a smaller floor plate. It's partly that there hasn't been big capital investment in those buildings recently. So everything there is is end of life, as we would call it. And that might sound like a bad thing, but actually, if you're doing a conversion, it's a good thing because the value of the building is lower. And if you need to replace all the mechanical systems anyway, then why not do the do the conversion? So it's a few of those kind of factors. Uh, and also because they're generally the main t- tenant or the anchor tenant. And if they go, then it's much easier to do a conversion uh, than it is in a multi-tenant building where you know some tenants might leave and some might stay. So they are scoring slightly higher, and I think that gives the federal government the opportunity to really um, figure out which buildings make the best or are best suited, and then push them forwards to create uh, a vast amount of uh, new housing as well. Have you been seeing much interest from governments to do this? I know it can be a slow-moving process in bureaucracy, um, even when it comes to the buildings they own. Uh, but you're seeing a bit of you're obviously you're seeing them look for solutions to this, and we've been hearing it for the last few weeks. Uh, certainly from the federal government, about trying to find ways to use existing government land to help try to alleviate uh, some of the housing crunch. Is this something they've they've expressed an interest in? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a few reasons for that. Firstly, the housing crisis, obviously, uh, is a big driver. But the other thing is that they know that they need to reduce the amount of space they have. Uh, they have less workers coming into the office, and they had too much space pre-pandemic as well. They are trying to soften that blow and do that by creating housing and they're obviously also looking to do that in a, a low carbon sustainable way and converting buildings is a great way to save uh, embodied carbon so they are looking at it uh, it's a little slow moving in in canada right now but if you look you know, south of the border where i'm coming to you from chicago mm-hmm. air, airport today you know, south of the border they just announced the federal program which is 350 billion dollars to uh, provide low interest loans and grants uh, and tax abatement to make these projects happen. Is, is that, and that applies, anyone could, that's not just for federal government owned buildings in the US, that's for anybody. I mean, that's an incentive that anybody, anybody can use, is that right? That's right, it applies to any buildings, um, but as part of that uh, program, which we're actually involved in, in putting together, some of the departments are being asked to essentially give away their buildings that they're not using to give them away to, for free to create affordable housing. Um, wow. So that is really gonna help move hopefully move the process forward in the U.S. Um, and provides, honestly, a good template for what we could do in Canada, too. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, in that in that sense, that must be one of the solutions that Canada would look to as well. Would there be any roadblocks here compared to the U.S.? It always seems like the Americans tend to be able to do these sorts of things faster than we do. <laughs> I actually think kind of the opposite. And right. I was really surprised how quickly the U.S. moved. They, they found money they didn't need congressional approval for, and they did it while they didn't have a speaker, so they wouldn't be able to get congressional approval anyway. Canada is is more, we have a political system that's less partisan. 
to put it nicely. So there's general uh, bipartisan agreement on the need to create housing and the need to create affordable housing as well. So I would actually hope that we'd be able to move pretty quickly in Canada. Maybe I'm just being an optimist, but I hope that's true. Well, Stephen, I appreciate your insight on this. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks very much. All right, let me just, uh, I'm going to grab an apple. You know, George, that's an onion. (laughs) Yes, it is. For some reason, while thinking about this interview today, I thought about that skit. I don't know what it is. I mean, I don't think I've ever mistaken an apple for an onion or an onion for an apple. But but you could see how it could happen. You could see how it could happen. They're both kind of, you know, they have they have they have similarities. Some. Um, tell me what you know. I've kind of given this away already. But what do you think these are? The Aunt Sally, the Black Emmet, the Water Luscious, the Burn Skin, the Bushy Top, the Carney Creek Sweet Limber Twig. Uh, the Ma Deli Wine Sap, the Madison Mammoth, the Mule Face, the Pokeberry Red, the Transcendent Crab, and the Tiger Spice. They're all varieties of apples. You won't find them at your local grocery store, obviously. In fact, I don't think a lot of them are necessarily eating apples, but they're apples nonetheless. One's tracked down and preserved by a man known, quite simply, as the apple hunter. Tom Brown is a retired chemical engineer who lives on an apple orchard, lo and be, of course, in North Carolina. And for nearly 25 years now, he's been tracking down lost varieties of apples, finding more than 1,200 of them, including one that took him many, many years to find and that he wound up finding very close to home. He'll explain. Now, I grew up in Quebec, so lots of apples there. I live in BC now, lots of apples here, bordering on Washington State. Tons of apples there. There, but these are something entirely different. In fact, he's mostly kept pretty close to home around North Carolina. He explains why that is. Um, but you can say, really, he's as much of an apple adventurer and admirer as a hunter, per se. And uh, Tom Brown joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Well, I'm glad to have the opportunity, and it's a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, I, I mean, tell me a bit how the about how this got started because it's become such an incredible, um, incredible journey that you've been on, an apple journey that you've been on. But where did it all begin? I gather it was at a farmers market. Yes, my wife and I love farmers markets. For instance, when we went to Alaska, we made sure we were in Fairbanks at the the day of their farmers market, and when right. we were in, uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, we went to that one. But there was one we especially liked to go to near our home and, and it was in Winston-Salem. It was a, a farmer's market at the fairgrounds. And there was one gentleman there. He actually sold heritage apple trees later in the fall from his home, but he would come in the late summer and early fall and bring his baskets of apples. Maybe he would have 14 varieties and the next week he would have different varieties. And I was fascinated by all the colors and names and taste and textures. And I found out that uh, several of the varieties he had discovered himself, and his name was Maurice Marshall, and I asked him if there were any apples he was looking for in Forsyth County, and there was one, and it was from my part of the county, a Harper seedling. So I started informally looking for that, and I wasn't having any success And so I approached a local newspaper and they did an article about my looking for that apple. And I received maybe 12 or 14 calls, but I didn't find the apple. Later, I found maybe five 
four or five sites where the apple had been growing in our area. And I approached another newspaper in an adjoining county where in the late 1800s, there was a nursery that sold the Harper seedling and I only got two responses there. And I thought I'd try one more time. And so I approached my hometown newspaper, which was uh, two counties to the southeast, Idle County. The newspaper there ran an article about my looking for old apples, and I found four rare apple varieties. And so after that, I was... You had the bug. <laughs> you had the bug. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> it's It's been an amazing... I mean, you've set out and found... Um, I guess about 1,200 different varieties of apples. Um, and yet apples weren't something that you'd paid a whole lot of attention to before then. But it's amazing if you go to the grocery store now, how few varieties, and I live in a place where there are a fair number of apples. I, I don't recognize almost any of the 1,200 that you've listed. Well, they've, you know, through focus groups and all, they've, they've standardized on just a few varieties of the same size and they have another characteristic in that they typically color up uh, beautifully before they're ripe. And if they're not fully ripe in that way, they can ship them and store them easily. If an apple is doesn't color up nicely until it's fully ripe, then it's, it doesn't keep very long. Right. So it's more about the aesthetics of them, like so much of the, of the yeah, stuff. Well, we and, now, and, yeah. And, that wasn't another thing. Some of these old varieties had uh, totally different uses. Like in colonial times, they uh, made hard, I mean, made alcoholic cider. That was a right. major drink back then. And they made vinegar and they dried apples to have uh, fruit to last them through the winter. And they used it for livestock feed. They, there were a lot of uses that, you know, are not so common today. Yeah. I, and I guess in the sense, you did end up finding the Harper seedling, by the way. I should let listeners know. And it turned out to be quite close to home, no? <laughs> yes, it was. It was really, un, really unusual in that, well, there was one apple from Wilkes County that the man called a striped June apple. And that's sort of a generic name. But wh what happened was, there was something strange about that apple it didn't ripen until August. There were a lot of our so-called June apples that actually ripened in July, but I'd never encountered one that actually ripened so late that they still called it a June apple. And one day, and I had extensive descriptions and actually even an old watercolor drawing of the Harper seedling. And one day, after many years, I had this growing in my orchard, and it dawned on me, Gosh, that apple fits the description of the Harper seedling. In your own orchard? <laughs> yes, in my old orchard that, that I had grafted from a tree in Wilkes County. Wow. And, that, and there was one remaining person in our community that still remembered what a Harper seedling looked like. And I took the apple to him and... Uh, he said, yes, that's definitely the Harper seedling. So there you have it. Mystery solved. Mystery I know, solved. I know that was that was a thrill. That took a long that took quite a while, didn't it? It was probably at least seven years after I initially <laughs> saw that tree. I understand that you spend uh, just to 
to so listeners understand how you go about finding these species, you pretty much go and knock on people's doors. You see, you know, you just you're always on the lookout uh, throughout the area that you're in. You're always on the lookout for different varieties of apples that might still be out there. Well, uh, early on, people, a lot of people would get the newspaper that there wasn't, you know, cell phones and 24 hour news. And so they readily responded to these newspaper articles about my looking for old apples. And another outreach way, I would go to festivals with an extensive apple display. I usually wasn't even selling anything, just maybe 70 old apple varieties. And people would come along and tell me about apples they remembered or people I ought to go see. Usually they didn't say, I have such and such a super rare apple. You you had to go to the site and go see Uncle Ralph and uh, learn what type trees he had. And and usually if I got into a community, I would ask, like, who else could I go see? So if somebody gave me a contact in the community, I would turn it into six contacts. Tom, this this in many ways, I mean, some of these varieties that you've found uh, and have managed to track down might just simply disappear for good if you hadn't, if there weren't people like you out there trying to make sure that they're preserved. Yes, I was uh, very fortunate in that I started, and it was sort of at the end of an era that there were still elderly people in their 70s and 80s that could identify the old varieties and assist me. And there was the old trees were still alive. Apple trees are short lived. They get hollow in the center, and if they're near a home and don't, you know, look a little ragged, that people cut them down. So it was something that really couldn't be duplicated today. And that was another thing that inspired me. I could see these uh, people passing away, and the trees dying or being cut down and i knew that i had to do this with energy and quickly to are are those trees and that history would be would be gone and and another thing that really inspired me was when i got into wilkes county where it was the mother load of old apples it was half of the county was only an hour's drive for me and it was so easy to find the old apple varieties there. Yeah. I, I realized looking at the list of the varieties you found, a lot of them are pretty close to home for you. I mean, apples grow in a lot of parts of North America. I guess everyone could do this in their backyard. I noticed you have, there are no list of Canadian apple varieties that you found, but people on, on everywhere could do this in their own backyard if they wanted to. Yes, because sometimes people will contact me and I said, well, you could do the same thing in, in your area. On my website, I have one of the little tabs that tells people how to identify unknown apples. And and what what I would typically do if if I was in their area and didn't have, you know, extensive text and all that, I I would uh, take the apples and perhaps try to track down previous owners or adjoining property owners and see if, if what they knew about the history of, the, of an apple tree that was on that property. And another way I've done and gotten several identified recently is I would go to where people gathered, like, uh, you know, like if a group of men gathered for breakfast at right. 6.15 in the morning, I would show up with apples and say, 
do any of y'all recognize this apple? So, Tom, when you look back at all the, you know, since 1999, you know, 24 years going on almost a quarter century now of apple hunting, what do you think, what's been the best part about it for you? Well, it's something wonderful and inspiring to do in, in my retirement. It's worthwhile and I'm helping restore the agricultural history of our area. And, and it's the, the reason there's no Canadian apples in there. Well I, well, I did find one, the Sandow. That was a Canadian apple. I really don't get much assistance unless I show up at somebody's door. You know, I know it's a social media and internet uh, era, but still, my apple search is limited to like how far I can drive in six hours. Right. Yeah, the, the yeah. Quebec or, or Washington State or British Columbia—that's a that's a long way from where you are. Hey, Tom, I, yeah, this yeah. is such a good area. I, I can be plenty busy here, and I don't have to go to another, you know, way off. You know, I don't have to go eight hundred miles away. Let some let someone else pick up your and be inspired by you and do it for themselves in their own backyard. Tom, thank you so much. Well, thank you, and it was a pleasure to talk to you and. Uh, we have visited British Columbia, and it was it was great. We actually saw the northern lights up there in the summer. Awesome. I had, you must have had an apple, too, at least one. Or maybe not. Maybe you don't eat apples on vacation. Well, we, I'm sure we did. <laughs>